what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Foot Candle Films, our podcast here on the Mesh.TV podcast network. My name is Alan Jackson. I am a co-director and co-founder of the Foot Candle Film Society and the annual Foot Candle Film Festival. With me across the table, as always, Chris Fry, the other co in those two same titles, co-director, co-founder, Foot Candle Film Festival, Foot Candle Film Society. Chris, how you doing? I am doing well. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing both of the films we have on the docket for today. And just like he said, we have two films we'll be discussing during the show today. Our film discussion, review, and some film news show that we put out for your entertainment. We're going to be discussing two films. One up, the first one up is a film called Minari. That is director Lee Isaac Chung's autobiographical film. And then we'll be reviewing, uh, hopefully not taking as much time as the actual film itself, (laughs) we'll be discussing the Zack Snyder four-hour cut of Justice League. That will be later in the show. So it's literally twice as long as Minari, which is two hours. Twice as long. So will we be spending twice as long discussing (laughs) it? We'll find out. Again, that'll be later in the show. First up, we'll be reviewing Minari, then the Justice League. Then Chris and I also have a couple of movie news items to discuss and share with you that we've just been uh, made aware of and wanted to dissect. And then we end the show like we always do with each of us giving our recommendation of a film we think is worth checking out. Typically something you can find online, something easily available for you. And uh, either we just caught up with it or just feel like it's worth uh, mentioning again as a recommendation for you if you're looking for some options of things to watch. Uh, maybe going into the uh, weekend or just uh, to watch on your own uh, casual time. So, Chris, we've got a lot to cover in the show. I say we just go ahead and get started. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. First up is, as I mentioned, director Lee Isaac Chung's autobiographical story of a Korean-American family trying to sustain a farm in rural Arkansas in the 1980s. The film is Minari. What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. If you're here with us for the first time, please stand. What a beautiful family. Glad you're here. How's your daddy like that new farm? He growing things good, doing things right. I don't like grandma. Grandma smells like Korea. Yeah. grandma smell? Chris, as I said in the setup, Minari is the story of a Korean American family that is uh, trying to sustain a farm in rural Arkansas back in the 1980s. 
We follow the, the Yi family, uh, Jacob and Monica, played by Stephen Yun and Han Yiri, as the, uh, the couple, and they have two children with them. We, uh, the film joins as, as soon as they are moving into rural Arkansas onto a big plot of land where Jacob has big visions and ideas of developing a farm. Monica has some more concerns about where they've now moved to after having left California, where she felt like they had a fairly good situation set up for them. Both of them work in a local hatchery where they do uh, uh, take uh, determining the sex of baby chicks. Yes. That's uh, what both of them do for a living. But again, Jacob having bigger ideas for wanting to go into a more sustainable farm to sell produce, Korean produce to uh, local uh, uh, wholesalers and, and resellers. Uh, Chris, the film is really designed to to depict this, this idea of a simulation of a culture into another uh, rural uh, part of America back in the 1980s. Uh, they have two young children, so we spend a lot of time with the two children as well, both on how they're adapting to their environment, but also some of their own uh, growing up situations that they're dealing with. And we have the introduction of the grandmother, the mother of Monica, uh, who comes to visit and stay with them and help raise the children so the parents can both work. Chris, this is a film that's gotten a lot of uh, Academy Award nominations. You know, it was one of the ones that was kind of in that strange area where at one point it was determining whether it was a foreign language film, just because I'd say probably 75% of the dialogue is Korean right, uh, and subtitled. However, it, it did make the best uh, picture field as a, uh, as a contender. And I believe Stephen Young also is nominated for Best Actor, if I remember correctly. I believe that's right. On the Academy Awards. So, Chris, my question to you. I know this is a film you saw back when it was initially being uh, released for screening uh, and have caught back up with again. Uh, how do you feel the film uh, plays into some of the praise and expectations and award recognition that it's receiving right now. Do you feel it's warranted or do you feel like there are some possibly some, uh, some things that did not work as well for you on it? Well, you know, having rewatched it because I knew we were going to talk about it today. So I did rewatch it. My initial reaction back when I saw it probably back in, Oh, maybe November um, was, and there had been buzz about it then still, I thought, well, this is okay. You know, it's an okay film. It didn't really bowl me over really. Um, I thought the things that were of note are some of the things that have since been recognized. Um, the young boy who plays Jacob, um, not Jacob, sorry, no, not Jacob. that is not Jacob. David. David, thank you. Um, the young boy who plays David, um, Alan Kim, he he was good. He's cute. And, you know, with young, real young child actors, you always run that risk of, you know, do they not, are they not able to deliver dialogue? Do they really hold the camera? Do they, can they be natural? And I felt like he was pretty natural. Um, he got a Golden Globe, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I've you know I don't I don't know about that, but you know he he was good. Um, the other person that struck stuck out to me was um, the one who's playing Monica's mom, Sunya uh, Yu Jung Yoon. Um, I really thought she was good. She plays the grandmother essentially, and a lot of the back and forth between her and David, I thought was I thought was pretty strong. That is what stood out to me. The rest of the film, I feel like a lot of people are really responding to and heralding kind of how it shows, you know, a Korean family trying to achieve the American dream. And, um, and that is there, I guess, to me, it just felt kind of um, very surface in many ways. And it didn't really have a lot of depth to it or not what I was expecting, maybe. Um, So I didn't come away just really 
a big champion of the film overall. But I thought some of the performances were um, interesting. And oddly enough, one of the one of the ones that I appreciated that I haven't even mentioned yet <laughs> um, was Will Patton as Paul. <laughs> and what was interesting is he's like a character right out of like a David Lynch movie or like the straight story. And I don't mean, you know, just kind of an odd person, but very gentle. And it's interesting how the family perceives him in the beginning and then where they kind of come around to how they feel about Mr. Paul, who helps out Jacob on the farm. Um, So I thought that was an interesting, an interesting part of the movie. He was an interesting character. But overall, I thought the movie was just, you know, okay. The performances are what I um, main stood out to me. Now, I will say also, before I throw it over to you, probably didn't help both times as it so happens. Um, I had watched Nomadland before watching Minari. And it just so happens this time, like kind of the same thing. Cause we reviewed that on the last podcast. I watched rewatch Nomadland. So then I rewatched Minari. Minari has some beautiful cinematography of rural Arkansas. I will say that, but when it's competing against what Nomadland did and director Chloe Zalda with that, like, it's tough. So it was, mm-hmm. but you know, just like, it's just, and there are films doing different things, but it just kind of, kind of stuck in my mind that way of mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is good, but man, not quite as impressive as Nomadland. So mm-hmm. what were your overall thoughts? I, uh, I'm, I'm coming out a lot more positive on this. It sounds okay. like, I mean, I really, really enjoyed this film. Okay. I really found a lot to like out of it. Um, I agree with you on the acting. I think uh, the acting across the board was all really strong. Stephen Young is someone I've only known really from the walking dead TV show, which I mean, he was fine in that. I mean, nothing that really to write home about, I thought, but this, I really got to see him act here, which was really nice to see. And I thought he, he was really great. Uh, You already mentioned, uh, uh, Yun as the, the grandmother, Mm -hmm. Sunya, I thought very, very good. And I loved her interactions with the kids. I thought they just had such a great chemistry together on film. So I, I really enjoyed it. I, there's a couple things I have some misgivings about, I'm concerned okay. about with the film. I, I, I don't feel like it stuck the landing for me, I guess you could say, mm. far, as far as a complete package of a film. Right. But everything else, for the most part, all the elements working together really, really made a great experience. I, I thought it was just a really beautiful story. The idea of, you know, we've seen the kind of films where it's a family trying to make ends meet. Yes, and facing struggles. I actually even thought a lot about the documentary we showed last year, uh, The Biggest Little Farm. Mm-hmm. This idea of, okay, they're going to take on this big big challenge of trying to turn a piece of land that may or may not really be suited to be a really sustainable garden and, and, and farm and doing it. And then, of course, you get all the trials and tribulations along the way. This film, I'm happy to say, didn't go down that same path where it's just every 10 minutes was, we're going to throw you some momentous challenge uh, from a farming perspective that you now have to face. There were a couple of those, absolutely. But I like the fact that more of the drama we were facing with was the impact on the family, like the impact on the relationship, which I thought was a lot more interesting. I didn't need to see a film just over and over again of, oh, this crop didn't grow right. (laughs) And now we have this kind of uh, soil issue. There was some of that, but it was really more of a, what is this doing to this family and especially this couple? Because you get the impression that they left a situation that both were, you know, the, 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 the wife was very, very happy with. She was comfortable in, 
moving to one where she's not comfortable. And it's all based on this idea of the husband wanting to fulfill this dream he has right. of developing a farm. And uh, there's a lot of drama to mine there. And it did, I think, a really good job of mining that drama throughout the film. So I enjoyed seeing more of the impact on the family and even on the kids. Um, there was a scene about two thirds of the way through the film where the, 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 the mother and father were fighting and arguing mm. and the kids, you kind of get the impression have been through this before. And they both ran to the bathroom, folded up paper airplanes, writing on crayon on it. Don't fight. Right. And they just started throwing them into the, the room. And I'm like, that is such a very natural kids. We want to see this stop. Right. But they're kind of stuck in the middle of it. And uh, I loved all of that. So anyway, I, I love the family dynamics of the film. That's what really won it over for me. See, I think it's interesting. Two things you pointed out, and I didn't have the same reaction. And sitting here thinking about how I did react to it, I think I just needed more of it. So Stephen Yoon, you know, playing Jacob, I guess because his character was so, you know, it's like the challenges aspects of his masculinity because he's supposed to be the breadwinner for the family. Mm-hmm. He's having all these struggles. So everybody heralds or talks, gives a lot of kudos to his performance. And to me, it was actually kind of flat. Hmm. And I think that was actually, now that I'm, you know, kind of hacking into it a little more, I guess by design, because it's supposed to be, he is restrained. It's all bubbling under the surface, but I guess I needed to see a little bit more bubbling and something about the family stuff. um, Also kind of, you know, maybe restrained because that's maybe their cultures. They don't, you know, it's just, and so, so much of it was kind of, I don't know. It was kind of like underwhelming tension to me, or I expected a lot more. And so it was just so bubbling under the surface that it kind of left me kind of cold. Hmm. But um, mm-hmm. I can, I can see that there was, you know, like you mentioned that scene about the the airplanes, the paper, like that was good, but something about everything else, maybe it was just so referenced and so in the background it kind of didn't. Well, I, I think what we saw impactful. with his with his with his role, his performance, he had to play exuberant and enthusiastic in the first portion of the film, which you know they arrive on the farm. He's really trying to get everybody excited about this idea, and once he starts to see things become much much more challenging than he maybe expected, he did become very subdued. But I think that's also because you know he doesn't want to show how frustrated he is. And upset he is and disappointed to some degree in himself because he's trying to be that that breadwinner. He's trying to be that rock uh, solid foundation for the family. But there are some moments where he does get to break down a little bit and confide in his wife that he's he's this is more challenging than he expected. And if it doesn't resolve itself, you know, we they may have to look at some alternate situations um, where the film did lose me a little bit unfortunately was the very very end uh, in that it felt like it was maybe rushed yes okay. and i felt like the final ending sequence that we see was not earned by the scenes we had just seen previous to it so we went from a very dramatic yes kind of things really kind of hitting a, a peak in terms of despair and difficulty and then we end with a scene that gives hope Although I liked the hope ending and obviously that's where I wanted the film to end, but it felt like I, I, there was a scene missing. There was a scene that didn't connect what we just saw and the trauma they went through and the decision that has now been made for the ending. Okay. Here's the benefit of seeing the film twice. Okay. Um, Yeah. Like I mentioned, the first time I saw it, I was kind of underwhelmed this time. I liked it a little more. Okay. I appreciate it a little more probably because my expectations have been lowered, but 
Um, there is something about the final scene now having seen it twice that I don't want to, we, uh, let's say, I tell you what, when we wrap up, I'll say, okay, stick around and you'll have my interpretation of why the actual, some things they do with the closing and the last scene, I think was awesome. Now, okay. some of you're talking about the big event and what that tried to achieve thematically and try to, okay, maybe I don't buy that, but how they chose to close the film out, there's something like really cool that I'll, okay. I don't want to spoil. So I'll, we'll say after we wrap no, up. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. Cause again, that was the only part of the film that just kind of left me is like, Oh, I just I felt like there was a scene or two missing that I needed to get better resolution of how we got to that final that final moment because obviously a decision was made by this couple right. that I didn't feel like anything that we had just seen in the last 20 minutes led me to believe that that would happen. Okay. All right. Yep. But if you can help explain that to me, kind, I'd love to hear that of, afterward. Yeah, okay. We'll do that at the end of the show. That sounds <laughs> okay. good. If you've seen Minari and you want to hear us pick it apart, we will do that later in the episode. Um Will Patton as Paul you mentioned that uh, really liking that performance um it took me a little while to appreciate that performance because at first I thought I didn't really know what he what was, was trying on? to do sure and I thought it was maybe just a over exaggerated performance just for performance sake but um I did come to like it I did come to like it by the end and uh I thought it was a uh, I've never seen Will Patton I've seen him in so many other performances sure. playing a fairly straight performance this one was just really letting him just kooky neighbors yeah and having fun with it so um again the children i thought were were excellent i really really thought they were both they were authentic children which Mm. is always tough that you mentioned in a film to see an authentic performance the things they did the actions they took the things they said were exactly what i would expect kids their age to say and do and that just always makes me happy when i see that on film Sure. And I want to say the score too. I thought the score was beautiful. I let's, thought the score was really, really nice. Let's talk about the score because yeah. it was really interesting. You know, you think of this, you know, that had this like theremin type instrumentation at some part that made it kind of Tim Burton-y dreamlike mm-hmm. when they would be walking around through the fields. Mm-hmm. Very odd. So maybe you're, it's dreamlike to kind of support the father having yeah. his dream of making a new start. So yeah, the music of this film was really unexpectedly scored and with weird instrumentation, but it worked. Well, it was, it was interesting instrumentation and it was also a more swelling score, which normally I I would expect a film like this to be very understated with the score, but actually they went the other direction and in moments it was very big score type of type of arrangement. And I liked it. I think it worked. I mean, in the opening credits, them driving into the farm and you have Mm -hmm. this really great, dreamlike score and it's like yes okay you're starting to buy into what this father kind of is envisioning and wanting for his family and it uh, it worked and then of course again this is all in the first three minutes you're going through these beautiful scenic areas a lot of great farmland and then you round the corner and you see Trailer. this is now where they're going to live right. and right then i think i can't remember what the score did at that point but i think you all of a sudden realize oh this is where some of the now drama is going to come from in this family is sure. this now new situation, her face, the mother's face <laughs> when they pulled around and saw oh, yeah. the home. Cause she had not seen anything of this area before, uh, was very telling. And that kind of got set the mood for the rest of the film. And mm-hmm. I, I think it worked really, really nice. So I, I, I really did like this film. This is, uh, I enjoyed this quite a bit. Anxious to hear your, your take on the ending a bit. Um, but otherwise, I've got nothing but else but praise to give to it. So. Wow, that's good. I, I liked it. I think I just wanted to be higher on it. I think it comes from wanting more um, above-the-surface tension from the father or maybe overall. And then 
if not that, some more specific moments that felt unique to kind of the Korean experience, maybe mm-hmm, or. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned the paper airplane thing. That was a, that was a good moment, not necessarily the Korean experience, but that was a good moment. Um, one of my favorites in the film. I'll give it some praise um, because I don't want to say I was negative on the film, but uh, when they talked about the magic and medicinal properties of mountain water, otherwise mm-hmm. known as Mountain Dew. <laughs> Um, I really like, and I remember it from the first time, but when I was watching it again, I was like, oh, that's right. Mountain water. And it's like magical Mountain Dew. That seems something like a family coming over here and learning about, you know, mountain water. Oh, you know, and it makes me feel, you know, perks me up and oh, it's medicinal. You're like, that's amazing. So I I like that one aspect. Well, in general, I think Mountain Dew ought to get some sort of residuals (laughs) from this film because it was featured pretty prominently. Pretty prominently. Yeah. Something else that did kind of speak to the Korean experience that I appreciated was there's a sequence when they're at church and they go to this church Mm -hmm. and they're kind of trying to fit in and things the community comes up and says to them are basically racist, but they don't mean them to be. They're just trying to like trying to make them feel at home, but it's very awkward. That worked. And for me, and then um, David ends up befriending this one kid who basically gave him a stare down in the middle of church one time. Mm -hmm. But he welcomes him to his house. He goes over there and spends the night. And those two boys like kind of ransacking around the house and, you know, in some ways trying to be adults by like having some chewing tobacco and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Um, It felt very authentic and they played off each other really well. And so I thought that was. Well, and even, I mean, again, I I guess that we're so conditioned in films to look at these situations that since that scenario you're talking about with the. The two young boys, well, David going to spend some time at this other uh, kid's house. Right. And then the father's brought in and introduced. And at first, you know, again, I'm so conditioned to think this is going to be a source of drama. And they didn't go that route. I mean, yeah. they, they didn't play this as a, oh, the American society is dangerous for, for these. No, it's more of just simulating the culture and mm-hmm. just understanding how that there are honestly some differences and, 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 but it seemed like the community wanted to work with the, the, these new, these newcomers for the most part. I was happy to see it wasn't just a, Oh, we don't want them here. We type of thing. I know that existed. Believe me. I know that existed in many parts of the country. I'm happy this story tended to take the route of, look, we're in a community where yes, we're different. We've come from a different place. We've come with different experiences and yes, the people, like you said, around them are saying things that are racist and right. they are very ignorant about the culture, but they're not doing it from a source of hate. They're doing it from trying to help be a, yeah. help them be a part of the, the, the society, which I thought was nice it was. Uh, to see uh, because we don't see that very often because um, unfortunately it didn't happen very often a lot in these situations, yeah. but um, it was nice to see it positive in this one. Um so no, I just I was really really a big fan of the film. I, I'd love to see it win some awards. I think it's it's worthy of so, and um, so I've got another one I'm pulling for. That's good. Did not displace uh, Promising Young Woman as ah. my favorite film of the year, but I will say it's at least one that I would not be disappointed to see it winning some of the awards this year at the Academy Awards. Good. All right. Well, that is Minari. Both of us positive on it. I'm definitely positive. Chris is. Uh, generally positive, but sure. somewhat maybe disappointed with all the buzz that surrounded it and not feeling like it's in the top echelon of films being released this year. Right. I think it's a fair way to say it, right? Yes. Definitely. All right. So that is Minari. It is out for video on demand. So it is a rental right now for a, a certain period. Uh, I'm hoping it'll go down to get a more of a reasonable rental price in the future here in near future. So more people can see it. 
But right now, I think it is like a $20 rental if you want to rent it for a, a 48-hour period. Um, and that is Minari. Let's move on now, Chris, to our other review. Uh, this one has a little more of an interesting background story to it in terms of uh, how it came to be. But we are going to talk about Zack Snyder's, what do you call it? It's not his, is it his director's cut? Is that, I, you know, I've just heard it referred to as Zack Snyder's Justice League. Zack Snyder's Justice League, the four-hour version of the 90-minute movie that we saw just a couple years ago, I believe, uh, directed by Joss Whedon on the first round. This one now, Zack Snyder's vision for the film, released to HBO Max. This is Justice League. Charging bush and don't wave the red cape at it. You were sent here for a reason. And even if it takes you the rest of your life, find out what that reason is. said the age of heroes will never come again. It will. It has to. We live in a society where honor is a distant memory. Isn't that right? Batman. Film critic Matt Singer of Screen Crush wrote this on Letterboxd. Two seemingly contradictory things are true of Zack Snyder's director's cut of Justice League. One, it is vastly superior to the theatrical cut that was finished by Joss Whedon after Snyder left the film in the middle of production. Two, it was probably unreleasable in this form, and it makes total sense that Warner Brothers hired Joss Whedon to rework and especially shorten it. Do you agree with Singer's analysis? And if so, why, on Or why not? Okay. So do I agree? Um, I do agree on the first point. I do think this is better than the theatrical version that you and I discussed on this very show. We did. Probably about two years ago. Yeah. Um, I do think this is better. I do think this is more enjoyable. Okay. I do think this makes 
the movie makes more sense. <laughs> um, right. So I'm with him on that point. I okay. do think it's better. Now keep in mind, I really did not like the Josh Whedon version. So Neither saying it's better I. is not is not a ringing endorsement yet. Which okay. Josh Whedon made superhero movies that were successful. Yeah. He made the Avengers movies. But you could tell his Justice League, it was a mess. It was a mess. It didn't have, didn't know what tone it wanted to follow. I did not understand the story it was trying to tell at all. Okay. Um, and it really skipped a lot of backstory that could have helped some of these characters get developed. Anyway, I'll admit, Zack Snyder's Justice League went the opposite direction, and it threw everything under the sink into this film. <laughs> now, the second point Matt Singer is saying is that it was unreleasable in this form. This four-hour form, sure, nobody's going to go see a four-hour movie at the movie theater, so I, I get that. However, I don't think that – I do think this could be a releasable version. There's two key things that had to happen, and this is why – this is my biggest beef with this film. Okay. This film is, an, is a perfect example of why we have the role of film editors in the film business. <laughs> Chris, you and I make videos. Yes. Uh, we do marketing videos. We do training videos, corporate uh, informational videos, uh, commercials, and so forth. Our day job, if you will. Our day job. Right. And I am guilty of when I edit a video for a client, I know that my first draft is going to be way too long. I tend to go long on everything. And I say, I'd rather start long. And then I rely on people to give me feedback so I can trim it down to something that's going to work for everybody's purposes. This film seems like the, the example of if there was an editor involved, I don't really know if they were given much time to do anything or mm. any direction to do anything. This seemed like Jack, uh, uh, Zack Snyder saying, look, this is every shot, every scene, every motion I wanted in this film is left in there. So the problem is we have a four hour film that if you took out all of the slow motion sequences, oh my gosh. might get down to three and a half. <laughs> and then if you cut out all of the scenes that were just excruciatingly long and had no bearing on the story whatsoever, you could probably get down to three. If this got down to a three hour movie, I think it's a releasable version that would actually work. Okay? You know why I think it didn't? Why? Avengers Endgame was three hours and nine minutes. Yeah. It was the longest superhero movie that ever been done. Yeah. I think when this was undertaken to bring out the Zack Snyder cut, I, I don't know. I can't help but think like, oh yeah, watch this. I'm going to make a four hour could be, movie. Could be. But I he do, wasn't hemmed in with having to release it to I think there's a. I think there's a decent three three hour movie in here. Okay. okay. Um, now, did I enjoy it? Zack Snyder's just not my filmmaker. Okay. And, and, and his depiction of these characters is not my, my desired view of these characters. I don't enjoy these versions of his, his versions of these characters. I, I think the film is still too dark. I think the characters are still, uh, he took out every, the only thing I remember from Joss Whedon's version of Justice League is there were two or three moments I thought were generally fun and funny. And boy, they're gone. I mean, this movie huh. wiped them out. Really? Um, yeah. There's a scene in the Joss Whedon version with uh, Aquaman sitting on the magic lasso and telling the truth about things, which I thought was hilarious. Okay. Taken out. There was a moment in the Joss Whedon version at the very end of the film where Superman and the Flash have a race. race gone right there's a moment where they kind of fall on the ground laughing after they had just defeated the big villain because they were just so relieved and kind of happy it all worked out superman and another guy another one of the characters just laughing having like almost like exhaling about what they've just done that's gone 
So it's like all the sense of joy that I remember from the only moments in the Josh Whedon version I liked are gone. So this is still not my, my version. This is still not a film I can go around and say I enjoyed, but I will say it is definitely a better movie than what we got the first time around. And I will give it to Zack Snyder. If nothing else, the guy has a vision of what he wants. Yeah. He got it. He put it in this film. It's very clear. Every single shot. This is Zack Snyder's vision. This is what he wanted. And I got to give the guy credit for that. I I admire that. I'm, I'm happy he got to show his vision of the film. I just still had a hard time saying I enjoyed it Um, because it's more because I just don't like the world he's created and the way he tells, he likes to tell these stories. It's just not my, it does not connect with me as well. So that being said, Chris, I'm really anxious to hear your thoughts. I have a lot more details, but that's the overall sense I'm I'm coming from. So I I kind of, you know, reason I opened up with that critic, uh, Matt Singer saying those things about it is because that was pretty much how I thought about the movie. Um, I could see, it was, it was worlds better because yeah, I did not like Justice League either. Um, and one of my big problems with that movie actually was the villain made no sense. Yeah. And now I know why, because it had been taken out of context and everything. With this film, Steppenwolf, who's the villain in the last movie, is still a villain in here, but he is trying to serve Darkseid, who is brought in. And then that makes a little bit more sense. And the, yes. way, they, the way they do that makes more sense. But yeah, it was just four hours, just unwieldy, way too long. And I thought a lot of times things that um, were basically in there for um, fan service <laughs> um, just weren't really necessary. Yeah. Um, and it's no secret, no spoiler, because he put it in the trailer. There's this whole sequence with the Joker. That's just dumb. Well, That's just That serves no yeah. purpose other than to get people excited before they've seen the movie that Joker is going to play some part in this. And about hour three, I was like, okay, is this just going to kind of be shoehorned in at the end? Yes. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. So, well, what makes that whole sequence? So we're talking about, there is a sequence at the end. It's about maybe 10 minutes long. That is a continuation of a sequence that Zack Snyder had in the, his previous DC universe movie, Batman versus Superman. If you recall, Batman had a vision, a dream, and it was the same apocalyptic world. And it was so weird and out of place in that movie. I remember you and I even talked about it. I'm right. like, I have no idea what What's that scene was about. <laughs> but it was continued in this Justice League at the last, in the last 10 minutes of the film or so. And I, A, that's another 10 minutes we could have gotten back out yeah. of this film. B, yeah, it did not work. C, if you're making a film and you're, you're taking this full vision and you're pretty confident that you're not going to be able to continue making Justice League movies <laughs> past this one, why include a scene for a, a futuristic version that is never going to come to be? Right. It just, it just seemed pointless. And it does seem like a, just a way to shoehorn the Joker in there for an extra scene, which uh, don't even get me started on, on – uh, um, his Joker version. I, I'm not a fan. So did did the original Justice League have the um, Jesse Eisenberg part in it? Yes, it did. Yeah. Okay. On the ship at the end. On the yes. ship at the end. Yeah. That it had that, that scene little thing. There. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I was kind of like, why include that now? Because that's useless. Well, it that's another original, question too. Why include why, either of those two of those scenes? Because shorter. all they're doing is setting up more films. But it's been pretty clear. Even Zack Snyder said it. He's not making any more. DC's not bringing him back to make any more. So why show scenes that are just teasing things that add on another 15 minutes to the film? 
Well, and if we're going to go down that route, let me first pause and on one point give the film credit. Okay. One of the things that I liked about it, in addition, like you talked about, it's a better film. It was the story made more sense. Yes. They gave the cyborg character more time. Oh, yeah. And if you think about it, they made him kind of the central character that everything else was kind of formed around like his mm-hmm. arc became the arc of the movie, which made sense because you've had backstory for wonder woman. You've had backstory for Superman. You know, everybody knows Batman's backstory. So it made sense that here's this, where in the first movie, they just kind of briefly showed something and it was like, okay, here's yeah, the cyborg. It was very kid. slight. Yeah. They gave him more time. And I thought that really worked. Mm-hmm. Now, what unfortunately they did <laughs> to me was they, instead of just being okay with giving you a little bit more backstory on this one character and letting everybody else kind of stay the same, they added a bunch of stuff for the Martian Manhunter, which I thought was <sighs> unnecessary. I like the character. Yeah. I understand, you know, there's, you know, but you just don't need it. And it just added time. It added time and it added some confusion, quite honestly, because there's a scene where he appears out of the blue, come to find out a scene we had just watched with a character was not actually a character. It was <laughs> him. And that just kind of caused me to take a back. I'm like, okay, so I guess he's going to play some sort of pivotal role in the last half of the film. No, mm-hmm. he doesn't. He just comes back again at the end. Both those scenes, unnecessary, Agreed. added more time, and brought in another character that just to pay fan service to say, look, I included this guy in the film. Right. Um, there are some scenes, Chris, that just... I still look back on it and say, I, it's just overindulgence. It was, you remember there was, there was a scene where the uh, Amazon Amazonians had just been attacked. Okay. And they are now trying to get word to the mainland, to Wonder Woman, to Diana, that, okay. that something's going to happen. There is this long extended sequence to show how there is an arrow that they're going to light on fire and they're going to <laughs> shoot across the ocean right. to give her notice. In any other film, and that would lights be a building on fire wherever Diana. In any other movie, that would be a ten-second scene just to say, "Hey, this is what they did." Here, I, I it felt like it went on for a good five or six minutes, and again, that just I know Zack Snyder probably looked at it and said, "I really love this. Looks good. This is a cool shot. There's some cool imagery in here. We're going to use all of it." And again, it's just this is the reason why this movie's four hours long and and doesn't need to be. Um, so I think, you know, again, I, I enjoyed what he was doing here. I do think it worked much, much better than before. But again, it's just, you know, the whole issue is going to be, you know, if you're going to make this a movie, make it a movie length that people can absorb in a typical movie time without a lot of extra this fluff and just overindulgent stuff that's put in there. Um, if you're going to make a, if you really want to go longer and you've got a lot more to show, then let's make it. Let's make it a series. Let's make it something where you, you could release it as a six-hour miniseries, and I think that would probably have worked better format-wise. Um, but yeah, we mentioned the nightmare sequence just not working either. Um, I think I am with you. I do think the backstory on Cyborg and even a little bit of backstory on the Flash, I thought was was I enjoyed it. I think it was probably my more enjoyable parts of the film were those parts. Sure, because. It, it made more sense to the story. It actually made those two characters more impactful to the story. And, you know, we've already spent so much time with Wonder Woman on film. 
Superman to some degree and now Batman. I was happy to see those two get a little more attention and have a little more to do in the film. And uh, so that was nice to see as well. When I don't, I don't blame, this is something that was wrong with the first justice league and it's still kind of wrong with this film, but it's, it's nobody's fault. It's just, I guess Warner brothers fault. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we had a man of steel. We had Batman versus Superman. We had wonder woman. And then justice league came out in November, 2017. So instead of doing, and you, it's easy to compare them to Marvel and what Marvel did is they gave each character at least one, but in many cases, several movies like Iron Man had three before. Well, did he have three before? He had two he had before two. the Avengers. And movie. then they had the Iron Man three and then they did another. Okay. So, but at least two movies usually for characters before yeah. they brought you gave everybody a chance to get their origin story out of the way and to identify them. They did that with Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman. If they could have, they did it with Aquaman after Justice League. Okay, but they also, if they would have just waited and had Aquaman before, had a Flash film, and maybe not do Cyborg because that added the arc for this film, but it's like you're just you're just trying to do so much. And well, I admit, but I thought the Flash stuff was okay, but by the time we got to that, I was so kind of fatigued and, yeah. you know, slow-moed out. Well, <laughs> so. the fatigue is the key word here. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to go on record in saying that a movie can't be four hours. Okay. okay, I'm not going to say that because I do think it's possible. I think you could have a super long movie and it'd be okay if 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 you've got four hours worth of things to show and mm-hmm. share. Zack Snyder did not have four hours worth of things to share with us. He had <laughs> two and a half to three. Right. And it's just everything was so padded and um, slow motioned and drawn out and every single shot and every single angle was used that was possible. That's where my, my issue, that's why the fatigue comes in. Yeah, I'm not saying it's just because it's four hours that I don't have the stamina to sit and watch a four-hour movie. It's truly that there's not four hours worth of good content in here to make it worthwhile for that time. Um, Got a question for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Zack Snyder made Man of Steel. Yeah. He also made Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice. I think yes. was the full title of that one. Um, this film, which they give you a disclaimer when you start watching it was shot in a four by three ratio because it was part of Zack Snyder's vision. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. When we didn't see that vision with either of the two previous films, why, why, why four by three? I have no idea. Okay. I mean, I really, that's a good question. The four by three for those listening, if you're not familiar is more of like older traditional TV format where it's, you know, four, four width, three high, a little more box, a little mm-hmm. more of a square, not perfect square, but you know, a little closer as opposed to like 16 by nine is kind of a widescreen format we're used to. It makes no sense to me. Okay. I don't understand because again, I mean, every film Zack Snyder's done has been 16 by nine widescreen or 16 by 10. So why, why, why go backwards format wise? Why go to a different format uh, for this film? And because this is using footage from a, a film that's already, he technically started and shot and then have it be this way. It's like, what, what are you doing? Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. So it's not like it was all along intended to be four by three and somehow they changed it. No, I think it was supposed to be 16 by nine. Yeah, I think so too. So, so I, I, I don't understand that, that decision. Okay. I really don't. That, that's kind of confusing to me. Okay. Um, can I, I'll, I'll just rattle off a few more things about this film that sure. I thought were just interesting. Um, you know what? I mean, I've been Affleck. I've been, not a fan of his acting. 
I have said, you know, anytime we've talked about him in a role that I'm just not a big, not really caring for what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, his Batman in the Batman versus Superman, I didn't really care for, although it did have one of the better Batman action sequences that film okay. has done. His Batman is in this version of it. Well, it was okay. He was fine. I, I actually thought he was okay. I actually liked a little more what Ben Affleck was allowed to do mm-hmm. with this film, with that character. Okay. Um, and I'd also think Henry, uh, Henry Cavill's Superman felt like he had a little more chance to fill the character in this version than I remember in the Josh Whedon version. Um, it's still, neither of them are my preferred treatments of the characters, but Zack okay. Snyder has made choices on how he wants <laughs> these characters to be on film. And that's fine. Sure. Gal Gadot is Wonder Woman's the only one I felt like is fairly consistent from her movies to Justice League. I she think, does manage to kind of translate. I think same, that yeah. she's the most seamless where I don't feel like I'm watching a different version of anybody. Right. Um, so again, Zack Snyder, when he's allowed to have his vision portrayed, he's fairly consistent with it. It's just when other people get a hold of those characters, they may manipulate them a little bit. Like, uh, you know, whoever did the Aquaman movie. James Wan, yeah. Tried to have more fun with Aquaman and make him a little bit more of a jovial, fun character. That doesn't seem to be what Zack Snyder was very interested in because his Aquaman's not terribly jovial, Not didn't seem to be as much of a cut-up as he was in the Aquaman movie. There wasn't as much humor. He was a lot more of a stoic, uh, king-like figure in this Justice League than he was in his own movie. So... Again, it's very clear what the Zack Snyder vision for these characters are, and at least he did stick to his vision during right. this whole film. So I I actually was able to, and maybe because I'd forgotten there was any humor at all in the Justice League film, um, I saw moments of humor in this that I felt like were still there and I liked. Okay, um, and I think Jason Momoa is able to bring little bits of humor to Aquaman, even though, and I guess it was kind of seen and then expounded upon in the Aquaman movie, and it, there was a lot more of it there. But I felt like, you know, there was kind of a little bit of a twinkle in his eye that he was still able to do some stuff. Okay. And I thought that it um it it worked. Something that I you know, the movie started and I was trying to get on board because I could tell like, okay, pieces are fitting together. Mm-hmm. This is making more sense. Yeah. They had Batman go try to talk to Aquaman in the remote fishing village. I was like, okay. And then, you know, he has this confrontation, which was in the original one. And then Aquaman comes out and they have this sequence where he's basically going back to the sea, not going to work with Batman. And the townspeople recognizing who he is start to kind of do this like Icelandic chant Mm -hmm. thing. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that was cool. And then he kind of wanders off and he starts to go in the ocean. I'm like, huh, interesting. You know, so it's a little take, added a couple of minutes, but I was was on board with it. And then after Aquaman has kind of disappeared into the sea, he leaves behind like a a shirt that he took off because he's about to go swim in the sea. And one of the locals picks it up and this woman's kind of looking longingly at Aquaman as he's disappeared in the ocean and she takes like a big sniff of his shirt. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that just kind of just ruined, ruined the whole What was like, that cool which, moment? What was a cool moment? And you're just like making it now awkward it kind and of kind creepy. of creepy. Yeah. So that, it was kind of like, oh, there's something good here. And then it was just totally undercut. And that, that happened, I think, a lot in the <laughs> film. I think, uh, you know... Uh, there's a there's a sequence where the Flash we get to see him use his powers the first time in the film, mm-hmm. and it's a whole new sequence that was yes. not in the the Josh Whedon version. He's applying for a job. He's applying for a job, but he saves a he he helps avert a major car wreck uh, fatality, and it's of course 
it's using slow motion because that's kind of how you have to use now, the flash. And that actually makes sense. And you can kind of see like, okay, yes, good, good time to use it. But then the fact that we've already been exposed to so much slow motion before <laughs> that, it kind of just lessens the impact. It, totally. Because it. it's like, okay, you've got a character where his whole thing is based on, we need to see him in slow motion to see everything he's doing. But you've already used slow motion with every other character we've <laughs> seen so far in this film. Right. So it really did just kind of lessen that impact. And I know that's a Zack Snyder thing. Uh, he used it in Watchmen. He used it in 300. I mean, it's all just slow down the shots and show really, really cool action in super slow motion. But when you have a character that depends on you watching it in slow motion, it does just kind of lessen the effect overall. So some, just some choices again, I feel like, I feel like if somebody had really said, all right, look, we're going to take Zack Snyder's vision of this four hour epic he made, and we're going to get it down to a two and a half, three hour version. I think it could be done and I think it would be really good. So, um, yeah, that being said, it's still not my cup of tea from a, the way he's portraying the characters, but that's more of a personal feeling. I just, I have a little more of a idea of what I want from these characters and this, this was not it. Um, but it's Zack Snyder's vision. And again, he's telling the story he wants to tell. And I think, I think this version of it tells it a lot better for sure. One of the other surprises to me other than, Hey, this is in four by three, which I was not expecting was it was also broken up into chapters, yeah. which is something that the original one was not. Um, and it started off, and I thought it was actually going to help me kind of conceptualize it a little bit, kind of put it into context. But that ended up kind of just spiraling out of nowhere. Yeah. And by the end of it, it was just like the only good purpose the chapter served was like, okay, I don't know how many more we have, but it's stopping now. So you want to stop and get something to eat? You yeah. know? <laughs> like, it gave me, it gave us a chance to say, we're going to break this into watching over two nights and Oh, Hey, we're at the end of part three. Perfect. <laughs> Sounds like a good stopping point. We're done. Let's yeah. pick up tomorrow night. Um, again, I, I do say that's one of the nice things about it coming to a streaming service instead of being in a theater. Imagine if this had gone to a theater as a four hour movie, it would have been, it would have been a chore, Oh yeah. but uh, at least on a streaming service, you can hit the pause button. Say, you know what? I'm going to take a break and I'll come back and watch the rest. And it was compartmentalized to some degree to allow you to do that. So I appreciated that overall. I mean, I had, I had a, 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 I had a more pleasant time watching this film. It is a actual film that actually makes sense. That has the, the action was better choreographed. And I think I've, I've made sense of the action scenes a lot better than I remember the original version of this. Um, the characters were very consistent. Mm -hmm. The story made sense. The villain made a lot more sense, you know, and, and we got more time with the characters that got, I think, a real short shift in the first version. So overall, sure. everything was improved upon. It's just I just it still has some work to do. It still has some work to do. <laughs> and I do feel like that the the unnecessary scenes and sequences that are there just for fan service really bogged down the thing and just made it less than enjoyable in the end of the day. So um, I guess I'm positive. Strangely like enough, it. I didn't expect to be. Sure. At all. I really did not expect to like this. I appreciate this as much as I did, but I did slightly enjoy it. So, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> slightly enjoyment. Um, and Chris, you're, you know. I'm positive on it. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I really hated the first one, so it, it didn't have to work hard to get better than True. that one. And I think this is, you know, it's fun. Of the three Zack Snyder DC Universe movies, I'd say this is my favorite I feel like they've actually gotten a little better. I really did not like Man of Steel. 
Because See, I had so and many I did, issues and with I did, that. And I did. So and I also liked Batman vs. Superman because I really liked Lex Luthor. I, I really like, liked Jesse Eisenberg. I liked Batman vs. Superman better than Man of Steel. I liked it better than most critics liked it. Okay. This one, I actually think I enjoy a little bit better than each of those other two. So okay. I think it's my favorite Zack Snyder DC movie. I'm still not super positive on it, so if that tells you anything, <laughs> but at least it's a little better improvement. So. Sure. Okay. Ah, okay. Well, that didn't last as long as I thought it was going to. We, we, got, we covered what we need to say, and we got it all off our chest. Um, overall, I'd say if you are a fan of the DC movies to date, you will probably really enjoy Justice League because it is one of the better versions of this story being told. Uh, if you wanted more out of the Josh Whedon version of the Justice League movie, you will definitely appreciate this one more. Just, it is four hours. Just bring know a cup that. of coffee. Well, bring, as long as you can pause it and then go to the bathroom, I guess. Bring <laughs> so a carafe of coffee, I think, <laughs> is what you're going to need. You might need one more than one. So, All right, that is Justice League. It is only available on HBO Max. So that is key to know as well, is that if you're an HBO Max subscriber, it's there waiting for you. Uh, if you're not... Is this worth a one-month rental of HBO Max? Eh, maybe. I mean, seven, what? HBO Max is like, what, eight, nine dollars? Something like that. Maybe. Maybe it's a little more. <laughs> if it's more than 10 bucks, eh, maybe not. So, All right. That's Justice League. Chris, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to hit a couple of movie news items. And then you and I are also going to give our recommendations for the episode. Okay? Sounds good. So we're going to take a break. When we come back. Movie news and recommendations. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on the mesh.tv. This podcast is sponsored by Jackson Creative, a custom communication agency located in downtown Hickory, North Carolina, specializing in online content creation. To learn more, visit thejacksoncreative.com. Jackson Creative, we tell your story. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on the Mesh.tv. Alan Jackson and Chris Fry with you from the Foot Candle Film Society and the annual Foot Candle Film Festival. Chris, we finished up our reviews of Minari and Justice League, both surprisingly coming out with somewhat positive responses from us on both films, which I would not have expected uh, when we predicted uh, that this was going to be our episode several weeks ago. So uh, happy to see that. Always happy to have a I mean, positive review. I guess Minari was a little maybe oh, easier to judge. Uh, Minari. Justice um, League. Please don't get me wrong. Minari is a much better film than Justice League. <laughs> right. But I will say Justice League was at least surprisingly better than I would have expected. Sure. Now, Chris, let's talk about, we've talked about movies that are out now. Let's talk about some that are on the horizon or maybe being talked about being made. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this news or not. So if you have not, I'm very excited to be sharing it with you. Um, the film Knives Out. You were a fan of that film. Yes. I was a fan, little disappointed, Right, a little disappointed with it. Um, wanted a little more out of it and didn't get what I wanted, but you were a fan of it. Yes. And I love the director as well. Ryan Johnson. We're both fans of Ryan Johnson. We're both fans of his brick. We're both fans of the brothers bloom, both fans of the last Jedi, his star Wars installment. Yes. So, uh, I was very happy to read just this morning that Netflix is now putting down $450 million wow. for the rights to two sequels to Knives Out. Not one, but two. two. Two movies that both are going to have director Ryan Johnson and both going to be starring Daniel Craig. So they're basically making a Agatha Christie style series of films. Hmm. And Ryan Johnson has supposedly always said that he would love to make a knives out quote film every couple of years. 
So now Netflix is basically letting him do that. Say, we're going to go ahead and finance Knives Out 2 and 3. Now, I, I, I can't imagine they would be calling them Knives Out 2 and 3. I think Knives Out was a very specific forks title in, for this story. And then spoons up or something. Right. But just like you have Murder on the Orient Express, sure. Death on the Nile, it's the same series of uh, with the same detective character. Um, but yeah, so Netflix is gonna gonna be producing and obviously distributing on their their network um, those two uh, sequels. So, How do you feel about that? Okay, so I'm torn. I I really like Knives Out. Um, I really like Ryan Johnson. I thought Daniel Craig was really good. Um, going ahead and doing two kind of worries me. Like you know, and I, somebody as talented as that. You know, if that's what they want to do, cool. But I like to see he's capable of doing so many different types of films. So I hate to see somebody like that get locked into kind of like a series. You're like, no, I want you to make, you know, some other a science fiction movie that's not a Star Wars movie. I want you to do like, I would. So the fact that he's on schedule to do two sequels to Knives Out, I mean. Well, it doesn't mean cool. that he can't do, do other, other things in between, in between them, but sure. I think to go ahead and be locked in to say, look, he gets to do his film series. You know, he hasn't really, he doesn't have a series of films that he's kind of like led up. He got involved with obviously Star Wars and he right. got one installment to do and that was it. Um, I like the fact, I think he obviously really likes the Craig, uh, Daniel Craig character. Yeah. And I think he just wants to do more with that character. And I think he's he's obviously said in the past, he's a big fan of, the Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot films and stories and loves that idea. So I say, I mean, I'm actually one saying that sounds great to me. I mean, I'd actually like to see another, I love the murder mystery format of a film. Right. So if they can give me two completely new ones with all different characters and settings and story, just the same core detective. So it's just, okay. And then, that's my understanding. That's what right. I would guess. Right. My guess is it's going to be a whole different cast of characters, a whole gotcha. different situation, not the same family we dealt with. And, but it's just the same detective and him getting to go explore. And maybe he still has Lakeith Stanford as his <laughs> kind of a, his, uh, his partner. I don't his know. Partner. We'll see. Yeah. I'm, I am excited that he's going to, that Ryan Johnson is going to, give us another one. I just, it makes me a little leery that they've said, if they had just said one instead of two, like mm. I just worry that he's going to, you know, do too much of the the same thing, but you know, there again, if it's, if it's what he wants to do. Yeah. So that is exciting. Also, I guess you mentioned star Wars and I said, do another science fiction film. I remember before there was all this last Jedi backlash that after he had completed that film, there was talk that he was going to write a whole nother like <laughs> trilogy outside of the whole Skywalker universe, but it was still yeah. going to be in the star Wars universe. And people were just kind of wondering what that was going to be. And he was going to be able to do that. And now I don't know if that's just gone. I have completely. not heard anything about yeah, that. Not a peep. So Which, I, don't, I don't know. Unfortunately, it does not bode well for it. I think star Wars went through a complete re upheaval after the last couple movies anyway, trying to figure out what they're going to do. And I think they firmly have settled their stakes in. We're going to focus on, these uh, Disney plus shows for a while because they've got Obi-Wan coming up and obviously the Mandalorian was a big hit. So, well, um, something too, that you mentioned, I remember when I saw murder on the Orient Express, which was a Agatha Christie and Kenneth Branagh was directing it. And he did a Hercule Poirot. He was the most recent version from just a few years ago. I was supremely disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, It looked, some of it looked great, you know, because of, you know, they had money to make it look that great and they had a lot of good actors but it just didn't work, and I thought it was just silly. So when Knives Out came out, I was worried going in. It's like, oh, it's an Agatha Christie-type murder. 
you know, can it still work? And it did. It had the whole clues. Mm-hmm. It had the detective. It had the, you know, and the machinations for me really worked and I was, I really liked it. So if he can do that two more times, that would be awesome. Yeah. Especially <laughs> apparently uh, murder on the Nile. Death is on now, the Nile. Uh, death on death the Nile. On the Nile. Death mm-hmm. on the Nile. Um, Kenneth Branagh directing that as well. Follow up to his murder on the Orient Express. That's been done for a while. Supposed to have been released. Uh, they've got a little concern now that Army Hammer was one of the cast members. And of course, anybody following the news, he's had a, a rough go of it the last few weeks with uh, allegations and some uh, criminal investigations. So. Right. So who knows <laughs> yeah. when that film will ever come out. So. Yeah. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm excited just because I did like enough about Knives Out. Just ultimately, I was disappointed because I, I mean, I, it just seemed like a perfect thing for me. I loved those mystery books growing up. I loved mystery novels and to get a really whodunit mm. classic murder style movie with a great cast and with a wonderful director. I was just so over the top excited and just walked away a little disappointed. Um, but again, that doesn't, that does not discourage me from wanting to see what he does with future installments. Well, I think what you can take faith is I remember the first one was like, it wasn't as much who done it. You kind of knew what the situation was. So you wanted it to be more of, I don't know, like you're kept in suspense the entire film and then something's revealed yeah. at the end. But I think you, there again, who knows? There was but some of with that Ryan, with Ryan Johnson. You're like, okay, he did that with knives out. You feel like with the second movie, it's going to be different and it's going to somehow have a different type twist. So he wouldn't try to pull the same sure. charade twice. So that's, I hope not inspiring. Yeah. But I'm a, I'm very, very excited. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. So what was interesting is the budget for the first Knives Out was $40 million to make. But Netflix bought the two sequels for $450 million. Okay. Now, that's not to say that they're putting $450 million like production budget back in these two films, but that's a pretty great return. I mean, you know, supposedly Knives Out, uh, the film made, oh, what? I just saw it a second ago, what it made. It made uh, some good money. It made three hundred. It earned three hundred eleven million dollars off of a forty million dollar budget. So it was not only low budget, relatively speaking, compared to most blockbusters, but it made a pretty good haul. Right. Um, so Netflix getting the rights to these two sequels, the the chance to distribute them at four hundred fifty million total, you know, roughly two hundred and some million each. Um, they they could stand to make uh, maybe a pretty good deal for them. I don't know, but it's definitely a good deal for Ryan Johnson. Yeah, so. which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, very happy with that. That's awesome. All right, um, let's talk about another director that we are, as of recently, a fan of. Okay. Um, and a project that they will be working on, which has also got a little, I don't want to say controversy, but it's just a little discussion around. Okay. Uh, Emerald Fennell, who directed the film Promising Young Woman, that yes. you and I are both. Big, big fans of. Still your favorite film of 2020. Yes. Still mine as well. And uh, it was her first directorial debut as a, as a filmmaker. She's nominated for Best Director. And she wrote the script. She wrote well. the script, a uh, screenplay for the film as well. It's nominated for Best Picture. So she's she did really well her first, first film out. Sure. But she's also an actress by trade as well, having appeared in a lot of things on her own. Um, it is announced what her next project will be. Well, we assume her next project. I don't know if she had another one in between, but at least the next announced project she's taking on is going to be kind of hearkening back to our review of justice league. This is going to be a DC comics superhero movie. Uh, Zatanna, 
which uh, Zatanna is a kind of like a magician character. Okay. Not one I'm very familiar with. Don't know much about her. But uh, Zatanna is a, she's been involved with the Justice League in the comics and um, it'll be her live action debut. She's never been kind of shown in any form on film before. But uh, Emerald Fennel has been tapped as the director of the, uh, to write the big screen adaptation for it. Now, whether or not she's directing it hasn't really said. Okay. It just says she's been tapped to write it. Hmm. So I don't know about directing, but um, she's at least involved in this project. So thoughts on that, Mr. Fry? I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. Marvel went their way where they kind of picked, well, Disney and Marvel went their way where they picked independent filmmakers, like they picked Ryan Johnson to do The Last Jedi. They picked Chloe Zhao to make um, Eternals, and she hadn't even come out with Nomadland yet. So it's like they see some interesting talent. So they had Taika Waititi do um, the Thor Ragnarok movie. So interesting for DC to say, okay, we're now going to, we're going to follow that model talent mm-hmm. and see what happens if they can kind of make a stamp on a unique take for one of our movies. So interesting. Um, yeah. Her take on a superhero movie to me would be just as interesting as what is going to come out about with Eternals. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what I like about this, I know some people are kind of online have already started complaining that, you know, she's already bought into the big superhero machine, you know, with uh, her second movie. Well, again, she's been tapped to write it, hasn't been tapped to direct it. So we don't know where the directorial role will go for that. But, um, I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I think it's, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's great. It's a great project. It's great work. And if you have a chance to put your stamp on something, you know, even early on in your directorial or writing career, I think go for it. I, um, I am intrigued by some of the higher profile, well, not the more interesting directorial choices that both studios, both superhero studios are making right now. I think Marvel's beat DC to the game by just having some really interesting. I mean, they had Kenneth Branagh direct the The first first Thor Thor movie, which even though that movie didn't work as well for me, it still was pretty interesting directorial choice. You had Joe Johnson directing the first Captain America movie. Um, obviously you had, uh, brought in Joss Whedon to do some, some work on the Avengers. So, I mean, it just, it was some really interesting mix of directors they brought in. Now you've got some Chloe Zhao coming in to do the Eternals. You've got, um, oh gosh, there's a couple other directors I'm missing right now. They've been brought in recently to do things. And it's just, I think they're, they're flexing their creative muscles and they're bringing into talent to support it. DC, like you said, seems to be maybe trying to follow suit a little bit and let's bring in some up and coming talent that uh, are going to bring some life into what we're trying to do here. So very interesting. It is very interesting. And, you know, if she, so on the DC side of things, you had the wonder woman films that, you know, aren't pretty much dark, like you're saying, like the Zack Snyder verse, but it'd be interesting to see what is the Zatanna movie, whether it it is what kind of tone it takes. I mean, you say it's a magician, so, or she's a magician. So it'll be interesting to see whether it keeps with the DC darker tone or with like the Wonder Woman films, if they try to make it a little lighter. Yeah. The description of the character is she is one of the most powerful sorcerers in the DC universe. Okay. And her magical abilities are genetic as her dad was also an alchemist. So, hmm. um, yeah, I'm intrigued. Very okay. interested to see. I, you know what? With uh, with some of these films being tapped and they're still working on a Flash movie in the DC universe right now with the Ezra... Ezra's, Ezra... Ezra Miller? I think so. Ezra yeah. Miller as the Flash character. 
um, you know, they've got some interesting projects they're working on right now. Yeah, I'm curious to see. I think I almost feel like the the Zack Snyder Justice League is probably giving them a little bit of an energy boost right now on probably working on some and announcing some new projects going forward. They finally feel like they've got maybe a little, little more of a solid foundation to start building off of now. Um, all right. Well, that's a couple of interesting news projects that we wanted to share as far as some directors we like or uh, filmmakers we like and what they're working on next. So now, Chris, we get to the final part of our show, and this is where we'd like to talk about our recommendations. This is where you and I both share a film that we recently caught up with or maybe have just uh, recalled and want to bring up as a, as a selection that we'd like to recommend for people to check out online or renting or streaming, whatever your, uh, the situation may be. Chris, would you like to go first? What sure. do you have to recommend for us? Sure. I am going to recommend The Mole Agent. I'll read you the description. Uh, of this documentary, when a daughter becomes concerned about her mother's well-being in a retirement home, private investigator Romulo hires Sergio, an 83-year-old man who becomes a new resident and a mole inside the home, who struggles to balance his assignment with becoming increasingly involved in the lives of several residents. So I got a screening link to this back in late 2020. After reading the plot synopsis, I decided to pass. I was like, you know, spending time in a skilled nursing facility, you know, on a documentary doesn't really sound like good quarantine viewing for me. Just not really up for that. Then came the Academy Award nominations. This was nominated for Best Documentary. I was like, you know what? I'm going to check this thing out. I thought it was great. Um, Yes, it is a little contrived maybe Mm -hmm. because how access and the cameras are around at certain points. But overall, it still worked for me. And the the gentleman who, he's not playing Sergio. He is Sergio. But the, the guy who is the older gentleman who is the mole agent, he's he's awesome. He's just really awesome. And, it, mm. you know, there are some touching moments in the film. So um, I recommend it. The mole agent, it is on uh, Hulu. If you're a Hulu subscriber, you can watch it for, for free. Otherwise, you can rent it at a lot of different places. That is interesting. I've never heard of it. Um, so where did you say it was streaming again? It's streaming on Hulu. Hulu. For free. But then, you know, you can find it on other places. You can rent it, I believe. But it's a it's a brand new film, right? Uh, it was 2020. But, you know, by the time a documentary sure. made it over here. So, yeah. But it's it's a newer film. But mm. it's up for the Academy Awards. Okay. So. Interesting. I'm not familiar with it. But it is one I want to catch up with before the awards ceremony. It's great. Thank you for that. Um, my pick, I wrestled with this one a bit now, all day. Is today. that, is that kind of like a play? Is that where this, cause it was like wrestling oh, like yeah, it was yeah. a versus I didn't think about that, thing going it, on? I did. Uh, you're right. It does <laughs> subliminal. It worked. That okay. Way. Um, I have been talking about how excited I was for Godzilla versus Kong for close to six or seven months now, because I do love giant, big monster movies. Always have love the idea. Of, I love the Godzilla concept. I love King Kong. I've loved just about every version of these films and characters that have come about. So when they announced that it, now they're putting them together, Godzilla versus Kong going to HBO Max that I could stream on opening night on my my nice new home cinema setup. Uh, it's just. It was it was a perfect match made in heaven. I was <laughs> sure. super over the moon. My family has heard me talk about it for like several weeks leading up to the other night, saying, "Remember, the Wednesday night we're going to be watching this." And sure nice. enough, I started it at the time I said I was going to start had the it. Popcorn starting at seven fifty. Everything. So like, yeah. Okay. 
Um, I am going to recommend this film for a couple specific reasons, but there's also some reasons I'm going to caution people that maybe this isn't their cup of tea. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. I'm not even going to go into the plot there. Why? Why Why do do you bother? Okay. (laughs) Okay. It's, it's Godzilla versus King Kong. That is the, that is the point you go to see this film. Sure. It is directed by Adam Wingard, who has been uh, better known for doing a lot of uh, like well-received horror films in recent years. Uh, You're Next being one of, I think, the first one he did. And then he's done several since then. I'll be quite honest. Couldn't have told you it was one of his films by watching this film. Oh, really? So no directorial stamp or anything? No. No. Um, And also, yeah, there's a whole cast of characters, like famous actors in this thing. But again, why tell you that list? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. (laughs) I honestly, I think I was telling you beforehand, I really wish they had just hired a bunch of unknown actors and given them a chance to be in the film because... The ones that they're paying big money to to be in this film, there's no reason for them to be there. Wow. Except to just recite a couple of expository lines of dialogue, let us know what's going on, and then react to everything. That's basically the roles in this film. Wow. However, despite what I just described as sounding like, oh, and the story was pretty ridiculous. Like okay. there's a couple subplots they throw in in this film that uh, add some very, very science fiction y elements, which are fine. But really, kind of lose my attention. Kind of lose sight <laughs> of the ultimate film for me. But okay. But listen, all of that. If if you're still listening to me recommend this film, you're waiting for me to hear one thing and one thing only. Were the fights awesome? <laughs> Was the fight between King Kong and Godzilla awesome? And yes, okay, they were. The fights were really really fun, and that's the reason I'm watching this movie. Okay. So if you are wanting to see giant uh, creatures battle each other and basically demolish a city in the process. Have I got a movie for you? This is it. (laughs) If you like love Godzilla and King Kong, yes, you will find enough in here. I think to appreciate and enjoy. But if what I just described, if those two uh, parameters do not apply to you, you do not care to see giant monsters battling each other and destroying a city. And you're not big fans of King Kong or Godzilla you're not going to enjoy this movie at all. I'm just going to go and tell you that it's not going to work for you. Um, So like I said, it's a recommendation with a caveat. Uh, My wife lasted about seven or eight minutes in this film. (laughs) Because I get it because the big lizard, the two things I described did not apply to her. So um, (laughs) she's like, I'm checking out. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, just to let you know, that's where we are. That's uh, how we are, are, are on this film. I still am happy that they made it. I'm still happy. I watched it on opening night and uh, had a fun time watching it, but um, it's not a great movie, but it's a fun movie f- in most parts. So <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Okay. Right. That's Godzilla versus Kong available now on also HBO Max. So, and you can go see it in the theater. You can go see it in the theater. It is making Unlike a theatrical Justice run. League, you can actually. And it's doing pretty well in the theaters for a, a pandemic theater situation. But, uh, you know, if you're looking for another reason to splurge on HBO Max, there's yet another one to add to the mix. Okay. All right. So, Chris, I think that wraps us up for today. We had our positive reviews of Minari and of Justice League, the Zack Snyder version of Justice League. Please call it Zack Snyder's Justice League. There may be a lawsuit. (laughs) Justice League. Got it. And uh, we also talked about the uh, Knives Out sequels from uh, Ryan Johnson coming Mm -hmm. to Netflix in the future. And also uh, Emerald Fennel and the film she'll be doing for the DC Universe. Um, and we will be talking about Minari just for a little bit after the end of all this stuff. So if you want to stick around 
I have questions about the ending of Minari. I want Chris to explain to me. But Chris, if somebody had some thoughts, feedback, ideas for us for future episodes or just to comment on anything we talked about, how can they go go about getting a hold of us? You can send an email to info at footcandle.org. You can follow us on Twitter at footcandlefilm. Al and I are also on Letterboxd. You can kind of track what we're seeing and sometimes we write short little reviews. Um, if you do enjoy this podcast, which we hope you do, please consider give us a star rating or write a review. Uh, share with friends and iTunes to help us reach new listeners. We'd appreciate it. We're also available on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. We also, in addition to our shows that are up on TheMesh.TV, there are lots of other podcasts you can go and check out there as well. So several ways to uh, get our podcast and explore others that were kind of in the family of podcasts on The Mesh. So we hope you'll check them out. Are you a festival or are you a filmmaker? First off, if you are, awesome. We hope you'll consider submitting a film to our 2021 festival, which is going to be September 22nd through the 26th. If you're not a filmmaker, I just told you the dates of the festival. You can consider possibly coming and seeing our festival the 22nd through the 26th. That'll be our 2021 festival. It should be a lot of fun. We're in the processes of putting things together now. Yeah, the plan right now, and we'll see if, if, if kind of restrictions hold up, but our plan right now is in late September. It will be both in-person component where we will have in-person screenings of films and, and with filmmakers, but also providing online access to those films too. So the good news is that there's a good chance people outside of this immediate area may be able to uh, watch the films from the convenience of their own home uh, during the film festival, at least in the state of North Carolina for sure. We'll see how far we go with it when we get closer to releasing the films. We should be announcing the films in July. I think that's And uh, tickets go on sale also in July for the September festival. So, all right. Well, that is Foot Candle Films for this episode. Thanks a lot for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Again, let us know. Give us some feedback if you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas for us. But otherwise, we will look forward to speaking with you next time. Take care. See you in the ticket line. Stick around after the song for some Minari talk. Okay, the ending of Minari. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. And sure. this is a spoiler, so we can just kind of go lay it out there. So yep. here's what the ending was, and then you can tell me what you got from it. Sure. So the ending, uh, the way I saw it was, uh, obviously things had started to get kind of a little progressively more treacherous for Jacob and his farm. Uh, it was already kind of struggling, and they were already kind of contending with their son's heart condition, which luckily found out was getting better. Getting better. And, you know, so that mm-hmm. was good. And there was a little bit of a glimmer of hope also in that uh, Jacob had just kind of made a deal with a, I guess, a food wholesaler uh, in the area, and they were interested in buying some some food from him. So he was kind of a little more hopeful about that. However, his wife in here basically agreed that, yeah, it's just they can't stay together. Right. Because the wife said, look, I, I can't do this anymore. But Jacob's basically is saying, well, but I, he acknowledged that he was going to try to still make the business work, the farm. They come back to the farm and you find out that the grandmother had accidentally set fire to the barn. And the barn mm-hmm. is where they kept all their crops and everything, supplies and everything else there. So all of his livelihood for his business uh, was burning down. Right. Um, they, uh, so they rush in. And Jacob initially tries to save as much as he can, but then he also realizes his wife is in danger. So he sacri- he, take, he says, forget that, and he helps his wife, and he and his wife survive. The grandmother also uh, is kind of uh, consoled by the children 
based on what had happened. So I get that. Okay, that's a downer ending, tough, but you know. But then we go kind of a little bit of a fast forward a little bit later, and now we signed Jacob and his wife, both out walking with a water diviner, somebody who's actually using the little divining rod to try to find water, which is something that calls back to earlier in the film. Jacob opted not to have somebody do that and pay them uh, to put in a a well, um, but now looking for a new source of water. And it seems like they're going to keep making the farm a go. So my, my, my issue is what happened because Last okay. I saw, the the husband and wife were kind of on the outs. Granted, he did sacrifice the farm to save her. Correct. But there's a big scene that I don't think I didn't pick up on the first time through, okay. but I picked up on it this time through. It's there, but you just kind of gloss over it. Okay, so everything happened as you described. However, here's something important that happens that's shown up on screen, and this is how I interpret it. Okay. Fire happens. Everything with the fire you described happens. Yeah. However, after the fire's over, the family spends the night on the floor together, laying out on the floor, all sleeping. And that's where the grandmother sees them on the floor. And There's all, yeah. a shot of the grandmother, yeah. and she has had a stroke. She yes. is in very poor health. Um, she's wandering off as the fire's going on because she feels guilt and like they don't mm. want me here anymore and has a which has there's been some issues with that already in the film. Sure. Showing how the father was kind of hesitant. David didn't want her there, the little kid didn't yeah. want her there at all, didn't like her, didn't want to have to sleep in the same room with her. But he actually is key in kind of consoling her and saying, Don't leave grandma, we want you here. Okay. So fire happens survived, family sleeping on the floor, grandmother sitting in a chair, kind of looking. Okay. Then you cut to that scene, I think, of the water divining. Mm-hmm. Grandmother's not around. I think grandmother dies. Okay. Okay. And then you have, but that that's not shown on screen. And then you have a shot of the father and the son going down to the creek where there was Minari and yes. say, hey, grandma actually did choose a really good place for this. And they're picking some of it. And he's talking about eating it, you know. Okay. And that's kind of the end of the film. So what, what that made me appreciate this time around was kind of the nature of um, the grandmother was seen as this force that was going to pull everything apart because she was coming in. The little boy didn't want her there. The dad didn't want her there. The wife did want her there. Mm -hmm. She comes there and she has a source of friction and there are all other sorts of friction, but she wants this family to succeed. She actually tries to remind the couple of when they first got married and there was a song they listened to. They'd totally forgotten the song. They play something on TV and it's like a Korean song and they'd totally both forgotten it. And she's like, yeah, you guys have totally forgotten why you fell in love in the first place. So my whole point was after this fire, after all this stuff, the grandmother finally sees, because when they first moved into this house, the the dad talked about sleeping on the floor together Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure they ever did it. This thing has happened in their life. Big thing. They do sleep on the floor together. She sees them together as a family. And she's like, you know what? Everything's going to be okay. Mm. And I think she, I think she dies. Um, so we don't know that, but I think okay. it was just kind of like this thing. It was kind of like she came, she sees everything's okay. Despite the fact, you know, they went through a lot of tough times and now she's okay to go. The family having struggled sees that they kind of take Paul on, they treat Paul nice they end up saying, you know what, if that's what's done in this community, maybe there is something to it. Using a divining rod to find water. They go ahead and go forward with doing it. That's like the community has adapted to them and they are adapting to the community and things are going to be okay. So that, 
it's kind of kind of how I saw it. But the yeah. the benefit of having seen it two times. What I just still don't understand though is the the the, the wife. I mean, we're assuming that she's now fine with staying on the farm, staying out there in Arkansas. I don't understand why, because basically it was insinuated that Jacob was willing to let his family go in order to keep his dream of a business going for this farm. And that's where they were left before the fire happened. Now, granted, he did sacrifice the farm to some degree to save his wife, Mm -hmm. which I get that. But that would, to me, tell me that he's willing to let the farm go because the family's more important. So, but yet the next thing we see, they're both together on the farm. I see with the water divine. And that's where I'm just like, okay, what transpired now? I don't know if it's maybe, and again, this is where I needed one more scene. I think, well, I don't know. He was going to be able to start selling produce. Yeah. He did drive to this place. The guy said, yes, I'll start taking produce from you. Sure. But that was when the wife was like, you're still going to try to make yeah. a go of this. I just don't see this right. happening. Even after that success, right. she, She's that's like, where they I'm still out. said they couldn't do it. Right. So that's why I don't know. Now, I wonder if the grandmother did play a pivotal role in kind of having them decide to continue on. Well, and maybe it took the wife saying he finally made a decision of something other than clearly saving he put the farm. The, he put the family he, first. He tried to save her. He's like, this is, stop doing this. This is not worth it. We need to get out of here before this barn falls on us. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I just felt like, you know, I, I need a little more understanding of how that reconciliation happened because sure. it did just seem a little out of left field, like, oh, okay, so now they're, they are going to make the farm work. <laughs> Everything you just told me the last 30 minutes of this film told me, no, they do not need to make this farm work. Right. But they are. And I didn't understand why. I was wondering if the Minari that the grandmother grew was actually something, a some sort of plant crop that they could actually do something with. I don't gotcha. know. I was kind of wondering if that's where they were heading when they walked out to the creek thinking, oh, okay, maybe they're taking Here's the Minari that and has actually thrived. found right. a way to make it something that they could live off of or be marketable. But Well, um, I actually did look it up on the web because my wife was like, what is this stuff? And it translates to water celery. Yeah. And it is stuff that they put in like soups and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So maybe it was something they thought, hey, maybe they could actually make a go off of it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That again, I love I like the movie quite a bit, but sure. I did just find that that to be a little just a little bit of a gap there in that last couple sequences. It just seemed like let's just tack on a very hopeful, happy ending when I don't feel like it it bought that it didn't, it didn't earn that going into that last scene, but I felt like there were one or two scenes missing that would have really tied it all together to make us see maybe the grandmother, you remember the grandmother tried to give um, her daughter a whole, a whole envelope full of money. Yes. We don't know if like the daughter accepted it. I, I, I don't remember what happened in that scene, but part of me wondered if maybe you know the grandmother did actually make them use the money and say, no, Use this and build the farm I up want and you be, be successful. I think, I think that, yeah. Maybe that was something with it too. I don't know. But you're right that they, the fact that we didn't see the grandmother in the last scene is probably. And there again, uh, I'm just kind of open to interpretation, but having seen it twice, it kind of helped me. Yeah, well, you're right. That, that, make, that does make sense. Okay. Minari is not the film I felt like we would have really needed a spoiler filled <laughs> portion at the end of the show, but that's what we did. And it was good. Um, thank you, Chris, for mm-hmm. clarifying me on your thoughts on the ending of Minari. I'm here to help or make things more confusing. There you go.
Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.